Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference, people say, is like Ted without the bullshit. Um, we're flipping it up this season. We're live on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash just spread over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work which I live in, which is our theme for this season of Mouthwash, the real world of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. Uh, I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. If you want to check out the full lineup and previous episodes of Mouthwash, head over to mouthwashshow.com. They're all there. I'm proud to say we are sponsored again this season, uh, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways, really fun sort of stuff. And uh, to make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. All very cool indeed. I'm also really happy that Ecology are back to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees strong at the moment. So if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and start planting your forest. Uh, that URL is ecologi.com, ecologi.com. So it's a good time for the people who are in the space to share the space. Click the round blue plus button at the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you found something good. Everyone you get into the space means another tree in the world. And I think everyone can agree that's no bad thing right now. Okay, on to tonight's guest. Joining me tonight all the way from London is Simon Alexander-Ong, business coach, strategist and author of Energize. Simon is about personal fulfillment, human potential and organisational success. From starting out in the financial sector, Simon now works with leaders, entrepreneurs, organisations and celebrities who want to transcend limitations. Uh, people who pay to hear Simon speak include Google, uh, the London School of Economics, uh, people like Virgin, Salesforce, even 10 Downing Street. Uh, the list really does go on. Uh, he's a regular in the media. He talks about a wide range of subjects there, from leadership to uh, energising individuals or groups of people. Um, possibly why his first book, which is out very soon, is called Energize, and it's all about making the most of every moment. Um, Simon Sinek is a fan, gave him a book uh, blurb for his cover, and he said, this book is exactly what you need in this moment, which I think is very high praise and very, very well deserved, actually. Um, so welcome to Mouthwash, Simon. What was the first thing you thought of when you woke up today? Well, great question, Paul. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the kind introduction. The first thing I thought when I woke up today was how amazing it was going to be to be shooting a video at the Connaught Hotel, which I did this morning over in London's Mayfair, in which the head mixologist at the bar there was putting together an energized cocktail to mark the launch of my book next week, Paul. Oh, very cool. And what's in the cocktail? So there's a bit of vodka, there's a bit of bergamot and ginseng, uh, there's a bit of the champagne to top it off. 
a bit of orange essence that is sprayed when he turned the cup upside down. Uh, all pretty cool looking. And uh, we're hopefully looking to share it on social later this week, Paul. So you can see all of that in action and also the recipe on screen. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I, that does sound delicious, actually, I must admit. Uh, I'm sort of getting after not for no apparent reason. I sort of gave up drinking. Um, not that I was ever really a heavy drinker, although I will be the first to admit that me and my friends from university do binge drink uh, when we see each other, which is like every six months, it seems at the moment. Um, but since then, haven't bothered, you know, and that sort of thing. Just lost that sort of routine and that sort of thing. But I am mm. slowly going back. Um, there was this beautiful drink called the Lowback from the new Hawksmoor. And I swear to God, it's changed my life almost. Um, it's like a coconut milk gimlet. Sounds gross, but it's actually very good. But yeah, not milk, coconut water. Sorry, coconut water. Um, right, sorry, back to today. Let's talk about um, your sort of situation at the moment. Where are you? Have, are you remote working? Have you remote worked for a number of years? Did you have an office? Have you cancelled that? Where are you? What's what's life like at the moment? Sure. So pre-COVID, I, I actually had a co-working space. I, I'm also part of a members club, so I use both the members club and the co-working space but once the world went into lockdown there wasn't really a need for a co-working space so i cancelled my membership to that i moved fully into remote working as all of us did because we couldn't go out and, and meet people in person and since we've come back out of it i continue to work remotely i still use the uh, the membership club but if i'm honest paul the thing that i have most looked forward to which i've been enjoying over the last few weeks is back on stage speaking live in person to audiences and being able to shake the hands, being able to converse with them in ways that we haven't been able to for over the last two and a half years. And are those people uh, friendly of the handshake? I have been to places where they're like, not doing that. <laughs> I think you always have to check. I mean, the, the, the last one I did was at London Book Fair last week, which was fantastic. I mean, it's my first time at London Book Fair. It was like a mecca for anything books. Uh, but it was fantastic. I mean, some people still had masks on, which is great. Totally respect that. Uh, but for me, it's just the energy. You, you know, the energy in a live audience interacting with you on stage can't be replicated in the realm of the virtual world. And so I'm looking forward to my next one, Paul. It is this weekend at the London Wellbeing Festival in Kensington Olympia. Very cool. Very cool. Um, what's been your biggest learning over the last two to three years? What's the sort of data telling you or, you know, anecdotal stuff? Looking back at the last uh, couple of years, uh, I, I think the biggest lesson that I've taken away from not only becoming a parent for the first time and writing my first book, uh, but also spending more time indoors than we ever have before, is that slowing down, Paul, is really a superpower. Slowing down is a superpower. Not just something I've seen, but also from what I've heard when catching up with many of my friends. Uh, you, you know, we've had this time to go inward when we couldn't go outside. And I think many of us have appreciated that silence is far from empty. It is full of wisdom, insight and solutions if we have the humility to listen to uh, to what that silence is telling us. Um, congrats on the book. Really interesting stories throughout. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. Um, part one of the book is all about awakening your power. A lot of people, I think, are feeling powerless at the moment, financially, politically, spiritually, mentally. What should people do to kickstart their power? Sure. I think the very, actually, there's two things that come to mind when you ask that question, Paul. The first is to focus our energy on the things that we can control. Now, there are, of course, many things that we can't control, uh, that we can't influence. And if we spend too much of our energy on those things, we become paralyzed by overthinking. But if we focus our energy on what we can control, however small, we, we don't have to focus it on big things that we can control, but just start very small. What are the small things that you can control right now that you can start making progress in? So that's the first. The second, to elevate your mood and your energy is really to tap into the energy of gratitude. I think that the author Pam Grout noted it best, Paul, when she wrote in her book, Thank and Grow Rich, which, yes, you may note, is a play on the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. In her book, Think and Grow Rich, she wrote down that gratitude is the gateway drug to abundance. So if you are not feeling particularly energized or you're in a bit of a low funk at the moment, then one of the most powerful ways to shift and transform that is to write down the name of one person that you can be grateful for, write down why in as much detail as you can, and then pick up the phone to that individual and tell him or her exactly what you wrote down about why you are grateful for this person in your life how they have shaped you into who you are today 
and how they have been there for you when you needed them. Um, I don't think most people have had a coach before. Um, Hollywood's created an interesting perspective and dramas we've all seen um, about what they do and how they act and that thing. What's the reality, though? How do you obviously work with quite senior people um, in businesses mm. and leaderships, but you work with all levels or, or you have done in your career. What, what is what is it like when you people em- employ one, if that makes sense, or employ the services one? Sure. So how it unfolds with clients will, of course, be different person to person because people will come with different challenges, people have different belief systems, people have different things that they value. But I think really the impact of a coach comes from creating that space, if you will, in which the client can be heard, but also they can be challenged to view things from a different perspective. Because one of the things that we we underestimate, Paul, is that we don't live in one reality. We live in what I would call customized reality. So the way you interpret an event will be very different to the way I do and very different to your colleagues, to your mentors, to your boss's uh, way of interpreting it. Now, that gives us a superpower in the sense that we are living in a feeling of our thinking moment to moment to moment. So if that is the case, we can choose a new thought at any given moment, thereby changing the choices, actions and behaviors that we employ. So as a coach, what I do when I work with clients is I create that safe and trusted space to really go into their world to understand how they see themselves, how they see uh, what is possible, but also how they see their constraints. And my job is to really challenge their current thinking so that they can see the world through new lenses. Now, when I describe this to people, I I draw an analogy. And if you've ever watched uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, you'll notice that what happens is that Sherlock will invite his client into, into his study, if you will. There's two armchairs. He invites the client to sit down and Sherlock just asks questions and he goes into the mind of the person in front of him to understand where they're coming from, to understand what had happened from their shoes. Because the more that we can understand their world, we can meet them there and be that guide to help them forward in whatever is most important to them. And so not just as a coach, Paul, but actually just speaking about this now to you, it is the role for some of the best businesses in the world. The best businesses or coaches or mentors or service providers have the ability to position themselves as a guide to helping to unlock the hero potential of their client. Whether that is Apple helping the clients give them the tools so they can express their creativity or whether it is myself creating a space so the client can see what they're really capable of and then go on to unleash their potential. Okay, I think that makes a bit more sense. Um, you, you mentioned sleep a lot in the book. Technology has a part to play in why we have bad sleep, uh, but it's not the only culprit. What else can people do to control uh, their own sort of environment so that they get good good night's sleep? Sure, and, and, and a great question. Um, first of all, what I'll do, Paul, is I'll touch on environment at a broad level. So I often get asked, Simon, what is the quickest way that we can make progress in both our personal and professional lives? And for me, it comes down to this. The fastest way to make progress is to design an environment that makes it impossible not to succeed. That is one of the best ways that you can action on to create that progress. Now, when it comes to sleep, one of the tips I would share here in this room is what you want to do is to make it feel like you are checking in to a hotel room every night. So when I often catch up with friends or clients, Paul, I ask them, when was the last time that you had fantastic sleep that you felt like you were rejuvenated and reset by the time you woke up in the morning and they've often come back and told me simon yeah the last time i had that was when i was on holiday at this resort or in this hotel now there's a reason for that the reason is that the rooms in a hotel or resort they have been designed to be conducive to sleep it is inviting for you to come back after a day of sightseeing to relax in the room and enjoy that bed that you're sleeping on. Now, we can recreate that in our own homes by making our bedroom an inviting place, a place that you want to retire into at the end of the night. So the more inviting we make it, and it's worth the investment. You know, we sleep for many years of our life. So if we invest in our sleep environment, we make it more attractive to want to spend time in our room and enjoy more quality sleep pool. 
I think sleep is one of the things that's hit me over the last couple of years of being the most powerful thing, the most powerful gift you can often give yourself, and also the most powerful thing to have a better day tomorrow, if that makes sense. Mm. Motion nutrition are great nootropics that I've been taking for a number of years, and they've really helped me power down, I think is the one, yeah, power up in the morning, and then I'm getting that wrong, power up in the morning, <laughs> and it's unplug in the evening, there you go. Um and the unplugged ones, I don't use so much because I actually sleep quite well. But um, when I have used them, I, I have definitely noticed the difference of, you know, the waking up just refreshed and you're able to just think clearly. And for me, it's the early morning where I need to do most of my work and get it sort of like out on paper and then organise the day and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, when I read that your your sort of um, words on sleep in the book, I really resonated on a couple of points in there. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. Um, you talk also about turning obstacles into a source of energy. Talk to mm. me about that. How do people do this during such trying times like we're going through? Sure. I think the uh, the, the way we begin to view obstacles as uh, as a source of energy, if you will, as fuel for uh, for moving forward and coming back stronger is moving from ego to humility. Now, now, here's what I mean, is that many of us operate from a place of ego. So when things don't go your way, when things go wrong, uh, when you face a challenge and you can't overcome it, what happens is that you blame everyone and anything else but you. And so it's the economy's fault, or it's my boss's fault, or it's the way the world is. That is the reason why this didn't work out. But when we can come from a place of humility, which is, what is the lesson here? What is the opportunity that has presented itself? What is this trying to teach me? What happens, Paul, is that then you transition into the mindset of an eternal student. You're looking for the positive of everything that happens around you. Now, what I define this experience to be is embracing pronoia. We all know what paranoia means. Paranoia is this belief that the world is out to get you that you are a victim of circumstance, that somebody is trying to trip you up or do you wrong. Pronoia, on the other hand, is this belief that the universe is conspiring in your favor, that the world is working for you and not against you. Now, I'm not saying that this is true or false, but I'm saying that if you were to embrace the assumption that life is working for you and not against you, imagine how differently you would respond to those setbacks, those challenges and so-called failures. It would be very different to if you saw it as something that was trying to defeat you. But if you're seeing it from the point of view that life is working for me, now you're seeing how that fits in into the bigger picture. I like that. One of the quotes that really stuck with me in the book um, was when you said the greatest loss in life is the one that dies inside us while we're all still alive. For some reason, that, that just stuck with me. I think a lot of people are feeling a little jaded at the moment. Are we reprioritizing and reprioritizing things? Um, how do leaders help their people uh, create their best work right now? Sure. Well, there's two parts to, to what you shared there, Paul. I think the first one is when you touch on the fact that people are feeling jaded, people are feeling exhausted. For me, many of us are exhausted, not because we're doing too much, but because we're doing too little of the things that bring us joy, that make us feel alive. And we're measuring our progress and definition of success against other people's metrics. And when we do that, it is a race that we cannot win. And so that naturally makes us feel exhausted. Now, what can leaders do to combat that feeling of exhaustion within their teams or their companies? Well, first of all, it is to understand the individual. Secondly, it's to un it is to understand the team as a whole. So if I, if I focus on the individual first, it's, well, do they know why they are here? Do they know their purpose? Do they know what they're contributing to? Because what happens in many companies is that we employ people, we give them a function, and we go get on with it. This is what you're going to do, get it done, and I need this given back to me by this date. But we don't look beyond that in terms of the softer skills. We don't try and understand the person as a whole. And so I think that when people naturally feel trusted, appreciated, and supported, that's when businesses flourish. It's showing our staff, showing our employees that they matter, that you are a part of a team. And when they know their role, and it's like when you, uh, when you shoot a film, when you shoot a great film and the entire cast is on point, the reason they're on point is that every single 
actor and actress in that film knows their role. They know what they're supposed to do in that film. But unfortunately, in many companies, people don't know what role they're trying to take. They don't know the role they are playing in order to achieve the company's vision. And secondly, for a leader, it is to understand the energy of a team. I remember Paul asking one of the uh, managers uh, at a company presentation I did, what is the energy of your team first thing on a Monday morning? And as you can imagine, it isn't very high. And that's what he shared with me. I can't imagine my staff energy being particularly high on a Monday morning compared to, say, the middle of the week. And then I followed up by asking him, so I'm curious now, when do you hold your most important meetings? And he said, we hold them on Monday. And so I said, there's a bit of a misalignment here. You're holding your most important meetings on a Monday, wanting your employees to contribute their most meaningful ideas. But yet you also understand that Monday is also the day when they're not the most energized. And so by understanding the energy of your team, you can reschedule the week in order to take advantage of when they are at their highest level of energy rather than when they are at their lowest levels of energy. I like that. Good advice. Good advice. Um, let's talk about the office for a bit. Um, some people are going back. Some people are staying away. Um, leaders tend to be heading back. That's what the data sort of shows. Some teams have never met each other in person, though. What's important to think about when you venture back to the office at the moment? Well, I think there's two things. Now, when you venture back into the office, from a leader's perspective, it is to have empathy with those coming back to the office because some will be more anxious than others, of course, uh, because some will have greater concerns about COVID, some will have less concerns about COVID. And so we just have to understand where everyone is coming from when they come back to the office. I think from an employee perspective, it is to understand that don't put too much pressure on yourself of getting straight back into the way things were. I mean, it has been over two years. It has been over two years since we have been in an office every day of the week. So when you're coming back into this environment again, which is a setup many of us haven't been familiar with for quite a while now, it is to go at it at your own pace. Don't try and rush everything and do everything in one go that you used to pre-COVID. Go at it at your own pace and do things uh, that you're comfortable with now, and then you can lay on top of that as you get more used to going back into the office. Of course, there'll be some people, Paul, that want to stay at home. Uh, that's on one side of the spectrum. They do not want to go back in the office versus those on the other side of the spectrum that want to go back in the office and be there every single day. So it's about understanding what works best for you, because I think employers at the moment are very open to flexible working and creating a pattern that works best for your productivity. Yeah, we had a really interesting um, chat with uh, Tim Oldman, the CEO of Leesman Index, uh, last night actually, and um, we were talking all about the data, what's actually what's actually happening out there, and there is a lot of um, misinformation happening out there, a lot mm. of data that's being misinterpreted, and they said, uh, sorry, uh, Tim said uh, it was quite interesting. That there's an inflection point coming up from like old wanting to come back and young wanting to stay away. It's now the opposite way around or coming that mm. way, and nobody quite knows why. I think that is a sign of the times of that most people just aren't sure what the next step is, and I mm. think that's a huge part of what your book is going to solve for people. It will help them take those first steps moving into a new world or a new life and that sort of thing or back into the one maybe they enjoyed their life who knows and it's gone that way <laughs> um let's hope that let's hope that um what about people who don't venture back into the office though do you think they're going to be at a disadvantage to those who do and if that's true what do you think they should do about it sure well i think what is happening is that i'll give an example paul so one of my clients um they have gone for fully remote policy i.e. Uh, they now have no physical office. So, so they used to have an office before the COVID pandemic, uh, and now the pandemic has happened. During that time, they decided to not continue with, uh, with renting that office out. So now they've gone fully remote, which means that everyone can now work at home and it opens up their talent pool across the planet. They can employ anybody across the world now, uh, and, and they can be working uh, on their role, on their function, uh, wherever they live in the world. What he's done instead is that he has uh, shifted their physical place to a members club. So when they do meet up, so when you meet, uh, and at the moment they're testing sort of twice a month, but they may move to once a month, uh, there's more of a reason to meet up. So when you meet up at this members club, you can go to the gym, you can make you some meetings and events going on. So there's a great incentive for people to come together. 
So I think for those who are fully remote, uh, there still needs to be some element of, of physical contact or catching up. Now, I think the challenge is for the businesses, for employers to figure out, well, how do we entice people? How do we give a great incentive for people to want to meet up so that either we're putting something like a social gathering together, a team development exercise, basically something that they would want to show up for. So that's an example of how one of my clients has redesigned uh, their practice of working. Obviously, it's early days. Uh, not sure how people are receiving it so far because it's only been fully implemented for, uh, for a couple of months. Uh, but so far, there's some early signs that people have welcomed it and they're open to seeing how this goes, Paul. That's good. I think it's always it's such a rough time, isn't it, for people? There are some people who have really like found themselves remote working. Um, we were trying to get to the bottom of whether they are more productive working at home or just think they are. And that's we, <laughs> nobody has the data on that. That's one thing I'm desperate to find out. But I, I don't think I'm going to. Um, but it's quite interesting, I think, when people, you know, haven't thought what happened six months 12 months down the line when it comes to um, performance reviews and things like that. A lot of people just haven't thought that far ahead, even though mm. we've gone through almost two cycles. We've, I think a lot of companies have, to use a phrase, gotten away with it. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about how leaders and management and managers should make sure that negative things don't happen if people don't come back into the office? Well, for me, as you said, Paul, I think for many of us, uh, we are literally learning on the job about this, uh, especially when it comes to uh, how do we measure people's progress when we can't see them in an office environment? Because we're going from a culture in which we could see what people were doing next to us. We could see um, the output they were producing to a point in which the only time we can see that is from the communication and what people are sharing via emails or social communication. And, and so for many of us, it's trying to understand how can we best respond to any negative experiences or something that isn't meeting expectations in, in, a, in a world in which we have nothing to compare it to. And so I think it is, going, it is a challenge for a lot of leaders uh, and managers. I think, to be fair, from what I've seen, Paul, the toughest is probably the onboarding side. Because if you've been in a business for a number of years and you've been involved in that business before COVID, then you already know the people within, the, within your team and within your company, and you're already, you're already part of the culture. But if you are just joining a new company now as a, as a fresh graduate or somebody who's just left uh, college, it's a very different environment. You're, you're onboarding into a company potentially in which you're not going into a physical office. Before COVID, you would go into a physical office and you could learn and uh, absorb the uh, information, uh, who, who's best to speak to. Uh, you could see how to do things just from uh, the people that you're sitting next to. But if you're now going into a work environment in which, well, the people you're working next to are virtual, and so you can only catch up with them in the virtual meetings, it does make it a lot tougher, I think, for, uh, for those just entering into a new company or those coming into uh, the world of work for the very first time, Paul. Mm, definitely. I've got um, one more question before I want to talk about flow and then we'll talk about burnout afterwards because I know we want to talk about that. Um, it's a slightly unfair question, maybe, but we'll see how we go. Um, how do we get the balance between, and I dislike the term intensely, human capital and profit correct? They seem to be hell bent on rinsing one for the other. But how do we make sure that we address that imbalance and forge a new world of work? Sure. And that's, that's a great question, Paul, because I think that so many companies do uh, face that challenge. I mean, especially within the last couple of years when we, we've had to look at the human capital side, we've had to look at the, uh, the financial side and, and make decisions based on that. For me, I think that if you are in business for the long term, if you are in business to create something special and with impact in this world, then in most cases, you will be one of having a bias towards the human capital. You want to have a bias towards the human capital side. Now, what I mean by that is in times of uh, challenge, in times of setbacks, when there's things that you can't control, it's seeing, well, how can I respond in a way that shows that I care to those that I lead without sacrificing the future of the business? And you'll be surprised, Paul, you'll be surprised how people will respond when you seek the option of involving your people in those decisions rather than saying, we are challenged, we're going to fire X number of people, and that's that. 
So you will have heard, and I'm sure many of us have heard of companies uh, over the last couple of years that have often said, well, we don't want to make you redundant unless we really have to. That is the last option. That is the last option we want to do. What we are thinking about is something more creative. If we were to reduce your salary by X percent for the next year so we can manage where we are and how we can respond to this crisis, what would your force be on that? If we were to find nobody but just decrease your salary for short-term periods and hopefully we can come back out of this stronger, we can then bring that back out. What do you think? Now, I think it is interesting to see people's responses to that because more often than not, people respond in a positive way. And so we've heard lots of stories of companies who have done this in the last couple of years. And I think that's how we can focus with a bias on human capital without fully sacrificing the financial pool. And it is a very tough balance because every business will be at a different stage of their cycle, at a different stage of their path. And so some of these decisions will be easier for some and harder for others. I think it's going to be a really tough balance. Certainly, um, you know, nobody's any richer at the moment. So everyone's going to be asking for raises and they've probably not mm. had raises over the last two and that's something. I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for companies to actually balance that. And I think we're going to see a lot more issues coming out around, you know, mass redundancies and and, and the like. You know, I think P&O are in a, they're a ferry company for people who aren't, aren't aware. They did some very bad firing recently, and that's the thing. I think I think we're going to see a lot more bad behaviour before it comes out because there's very little repercussions. It seems at the moment, all those people are still fired. So we're gonna we're gonna find out what it is. But I, I hope they uh, I hope they fix it, and I hope they choose better. Let's let's put that out there. Um, let's talk about flow. Um, you mentioned that a lot in the book, getting into the zone and sort of getting a lot of work done and achieving and feeling good and that sort of thing. Um, have I got that description right? Definitely. definitely. Excellent. I mean, for, me, for me, Paul, I think the uh, essence of flow is that when you have a vision that is magnetic and compelling and you are content, happy and grateful for the now, that is when we're in flow. Perfect. I, I tend to think that when, that's when a pizza's in front of me, but that's issues <laughs> I'm working on. Um, are there any shortcuts to getting into that flow state? Well, I think one of the shortcuts, as, as I sort of referenced earlier, Paul, which I think still... Uh, still applies here, is to create an environment that makes it impossible not to succeed. So if your environment is full of clutter, if your environment is full of distraction, then guess what? You are putting obstacles in front of you that won't help you get into flow. But if you focus on designing an environment around you that is conducive for flow, then what happens is that the probability you get into flow increases. So it is to be mindful of the environment that you are setting up when you get down to work, uh, when you're doing the things that you are uh, that you need to address. So that's the first thing. You want to be aware of the environment that you are working in. And second, it, it it is to really understand that you enjoy what you do, because if you don't enjoy what you do, then you're never going to get into flow. So for me, it's to really keep asking yourself, well, why am I doing this? What is this contributing to? Is, is this something that is going to help me closer to where I want to be and who I want to be? Or is it something that I'm just doing for the sake of doing so? And for many of us, it's a good chance to reevaluate where we are and where we want to get to. Because for our managers, for our companies, we spend lots of time putting together project plans or putting together a year plan, a 90-day plan for our managers and our bosses. But when was the last time we did one for ourselves? When was the last time we sat down and asked ourselves, what is our own career and life plan? Yeah, I don't think enough people do that for sure. You get to fill out, I tend to feel like most people's jobs or what they tell me is like, oh, I had to click a load of buttons today and I'm telling them what I feel. <laughs> and it's a very, a very weird thing, but it's, you know, people have different ways of getting information from people, don't they? Mm. Um, it's interesting when I think about flow, I just think about, okay, so they're asking me to go back to an office or meet them here and that sort of thing. But that space isn't necessarily conducive to my flow, if that makes sense. It's literally four walls against the elements and that there are no necessarily creative whiteboards or anything. From all your research and all the people that you spoke to, all the businesses that you've gone to, what's been your sort of like takeaways for the people who have the best offices? What do they do to help their workers get into flow? What should they be changing their offices? Sure. For me, uh, again, it goes back to the idea of if you want to get your employees into flow, you want environments that can increase that experience. So if you go to, uh, and I've been to sort of Google, YouTube, and a couple of tech companies' offices, 
what they have is not just your typical work environment in which you have lots of people spread out across the floor, uh, lots of noise around there, but they also have spaces in which you can just focus on getting work done. So they actually have a library in some of these places on, on the top floor, uh, in which it's a quiet room. So literally it's a silent room that you can go in there, find a nice spot and just do what you need to do there. So there's actually areas that you can disconnect from the noise and the busyness of being in the open plan floor so you can get some important work done. I mean, after all, if, if there's anything we've learned and it's something I noted at the beginning of this room, uh, if there's anything we've learned from the last couple of years is that slowing down is a superpower. The ability to slow down in a world that is getting more noisy and faster is a superpower because that is the moment and space where we awaken our creativity and give birth to beautiful new insights. Yep, I agree with that. When I want to think about a large program, like maybe programming for mouthwash or something like that, I will actually take myself out of my regular apartment or office as we like to call it these days and um go to just a bench or somewhere i've never been before and it's got to be pretty quiet but then just sketch out on paper what i'm doing but the fact that i'm in a new environment just opens me up to like new thinking 100 percent agree with that definitely and sometimes um, that's all we need paul yeah sometimes all we need is a shift in environment you know one of my clients was very much uh you know demotivated from just planning his week from the kitchen in his apartment every week and i said to him just change up your, your setting and just notice what you notice. And one, one week, he uh, went over to the Ritz Hotel. He got a cup of tea at the lobby. And he said, Simon, I, I was stuck there for nearly two hours planning my week ahead. And I was so inspired because that setting of being in such a luxurious hotel and seeing what was going on around me just really opened my mind to all these ideas and possibilities. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Environment does impact us enough, but we aren't thinking enough about it as a well, <laughs> as as individuals, as businesses, and that. They, there are fixed. Co- we were talking about this um, with another guest. I think it was Tim actually yesterday. There are fixed costs. People are in like ten year leases. They just physically can't get out of them. But also, nor do they want to spend like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times ripping down walls and that sort of stuff if no one's going to come in. So it's kind mm. of an interesting sort of like we we have to see sort of mentality. But also, there's that period in the middle where people are starting to really feel the fatigue feel the, the the pain in a lot of places when it comes to mental sort of health um let's talk about that for a sec and with um burnout you talk about burning out in the book you had a moment of epiphany when you were sleeping in a bathtub um is this always needed that sort of moment of epiphany or can people recognize the need to change before the precipice well in many cases paul uh, yeah, my story in- included it often does take that painful moment for us to realize just how much we've been punishing ourselves and our body. But my hope is that more of us now will realize the direction we're heading, especially if it's a negative trajectory, a lot earlier than before we get to that painful moment, which I think we are. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the, the, the sort of terms that are coming out from the last two years, we're hearing things such as the great resignation uh, over in America. Now we're using this term here in the UK and Europe. And I think it's alluding to the fact that a lot of us, because we spend more time than ever before at home and with our thoughts and maybe also being very reflective because when we can't go outside, we've gone inward. And we've actually been asking ourselves, well, is this what I want to be doing? Is this actually something that is positive for my physical and mental health or is this actually just hurting it? And what can I do about it? So I think it's actually great that, and, and I've been speaking to a lot of clients, I've been speaking to a lot of friends, uh, it's great that people are now questioning these things because you can't have self-development without self-awareness. And it's been fascinating to see how more of us coming out of the pandemic uh, do on average have a greater sense of awareness because we've spent so much time with ourselves in the last couple of years that I think that greater sense of awareness means that we are living with more intention. Um, and hopefully that is, uh, that is a good thing because it means we won't get to those points, those pain points, if you will, uh, in which we have no choice but to change. I think it's interesting because a lot of people may have had that self-reflection, but I don't think many people are counsellors, if that makes sense. So I'm not quite sure they process <laughs> those 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 things. A lot of people I've spoken with have been sort of self-diagnosing and they misusing terms and, you know, getting their information from interesting sources. But it's not 
it's unfair to say that we have become sort of self-diagnosing mental health and there is a crisis definitely going on but it's mm. quite interesting I'm, I'm reading a lot of data now and a lot of um stories that are sort of saying that people are not going to be doing well in six months because they've sort of almost given themselves mental health issues if that makes sense mm. because there's been a lot more data saying if you feel this 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 then you've got this and that's the issue i think that a lot of people are feeling i'm not obviously discrediting anyone's thoughts feelings and you know how they're living their lives but it's an interesting area that i think a lot of people are trying to sort of deal with it's not self-diagnosis it's actually getting good diagnosis if that makes sense um what would be your advice though for people who feel uh, that they might be burning out but are afraid to ask their bosses about it well for me first of all i, I mean I, I feel there's two parts here so if you feel you're experiencing burnout versus well how do you communicate it how do you sort of seek some help so i think on the first part the easiest way to know if you are feeling the symptoms of burning out is listening to your body you know i fundamentally believe that our body is speaking to us every single day the question is are we listening to what it is telling us i of course didn't listen uh, for a very long time until i had that uh, moment of burnout as you as you shared paul uh, coming back early morning after a long night and a client event and just drinking myself to that point in which i was you know, in a in a tailspin in my life, I was in chaos. I was lost. I didn't know where I was going. I was just completely burnt out, and it was something of a harsh truth that my uh, that my girlfriend at the time mirrored back to me and challenged me and said, "You know, if you're not going to change this, you're literally going to be killing your physical and mental health." And uh, and so we we've got to first be listened to our body at a deeper level more, and secondly, when it comes to communication uh, to our boss, it you know, we hope we have understanding bosses that are empathetic, but I know that isn't always the case. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much a privilege to be in a position in which you can be open with your boss and you can share uh, what you are going through uh, in terms of your mental health there. But I know in many cases, people don't feel like they can. And that for me is to do with a trust issue. Is there trust between you and your superiors? Uh, and not every company has that. So for me, almost the first step is to really be comfortable enough and to have the courage to ask for help now if you can't ask for help from your bosses or leaders for whatever reason is to first seek some external help uh and, and to see how that addresses the situation paul yeah i definitely agree that a lot of people don't necessarily think they have that trust with their boss i'm, I'm not sure if it's always there i've certainly seen it not be there and i've seen it been there but people haven't realized or they haven't mm. felt comfortable doing it and the comfort is the issue that i think a lot of people are sort of struggling with they don't feel like oh it's an open door but it's not really you know <laughs> that sort of thing and it's interesting um, Paul, because i remember i was i was in new york uh, just before i was delivering a talk to salesforce and i had the opportunity to catch up with simon Sinek, and i asked him simon if you could give one tip to people who are aspiring to be leaders in their organizations what would that one tip be and he shared three words with me, Paul. He said, ask for help. Because when you are in a position of leadership and you demonstrate that you are able to ask for help, that is powerful to the people that you lead. Leadership, you know, by, 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 by expressing vulnerability, it doesn't make you any less of a leader when you think about leadership. It actually makes you more human and relatable. And that's what employees want. Employees want to be able to relate to you as a leader. And if you ask for help, if you show that you don't know it all, because leadership isn't about knowing it all. Leadership is about giving the space for others to flourish. Leadership is about showing that you yourself are an eternal student, that there is so much more to learn and that you are operating from that mindset. So when Simon Sinek said, ask for help, I think that's a very powerful uh, bit of advice that we can all embrace. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very powerful one. I've certainly um, been asking for more help over the last decade than I have ever. I think, yeah, that that's definitely a good a good quote to sort of keep in the mind. And that, what's your take on the um, four day work week? Are you for it? Tim Oldman from Leesman wasn't super convinced yesterday. Mm, uh, for me, again, I think that every uh, company will have uh, some will benefit better from it, some won't benefit from it. For me, ultimately, I, I think if you want to make it work, you can make it work. Now, the closest analogy I can have to a four-day week, Paul, is, is being a parent. Uh, you know, before I was a parent, I, I would work, I may procrastinate, so I may say, okay, I'm going to do this over two, three days, but I could have done it in one. Uh, but when you become a parent, you don't have that luxury. 
when you become a parent, when your child comes home from nursery, you've got to be completely present. You cannot work once your child is back home from nursery uh, because they demand your attention. And so what happens is that's my equivalent of going from a, a five-day week to a four-day week because I know I've only got, say, six or seven hours in the day to get work done before my child comes home from nursery. And so suddenly I've got a much more limited window to get work done. That makes me even more productive, Paul, because now I'm asking myself, if, I, if I've only got this set number of hours to get something done, how will I know that this has been a productive day? And so what happens is that I'm much more focused in those hours than if I had an infinite number of hours uh, at my disposal. And I think it's the same thing with a four-day week. When you go from a five to a four-day week, what happens is that you've then got to ask yourself, now I've got only four days. What must happen in those four days for me to be able to enjoy the three-day weekend I'm going to get? Because otherwise, you're going to end up carrying that work over. So I think when you've got less time, what you find is that we make use of the time we get given. You know, if you know something takes you two weeks, but your boss says he or she needs it in one, and there's no questions, you will find a way to get that work done in one week. So it's all about how we operate within the time that we set ourselves. And it comes down to that trust thing again, doesn't it? If you don't trust mm. them enough to say, it's, it's going to take me one week, how, how do we do it? Do we double the amount of people on it? Or what's the, what's the thing? I, I, I think that's what it comes down to, which really trust is communication when it comes down to it. And I think a lot of people have failed as communicators in the workplace, whether it's HR, leadership, individuals. I think everyone's played a part in it. But there seems to be a culture of silence in a lot of these businesses. And certainly I don't think Zoom's helping or the uh, communication tools that people are using. They're not really helping open dialogues. If anything, it's sort of very quick and get to it and get out and that sort of thing, which I think is mm. what people think a four day work week is going to be. It's sort of like working 100 percent, 80 percent of the time. And it's not quite that. It's very different. And it depends on which sort of style of four day work week that you were going for. But, yeah, in interesting stuff. A hundred percent. I'm going to ask everyone um, on the season this question, but what's your take on the metaverse and the future of work? Are we going to be avatars floating between virtual offices or do you think buying stock in Zoom is still a good idea? Where do you want it to go? <laughs> I, I think uh, metaverse will continue to develop. I'm not sure if it will fully replace uh, you know, working in person and going to a physical office, but I think it'll be a compliment. Uh, you, you know, in some cases uh, where companies have staff literally located in different cities of the world and they cannot go to a physical office because everyone's operating from a different place, then I think there is a role of the metaverse. You know, you can be working virtually yet at the same time be working next to one another in this virtual metaverse. So you can feel the same effects of being in an office together. So I think, yes, it will develop, Paul. I think it will get uh, more mainstream over the years, but I do not see it completely overtaking real life physical working i see it acting as very much a compliment as as has co-working spaces acted as a compliment to being in a full-time lease uh, in a building definitely that that is a bitter bitter battle though i will tell you that's for sure <laughs> um Okie doke. Folks, we end as ever with Desert Island Tweets, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. So if you turn your attention to the nest, that's the bit at the top, um, there is a tweet, or now there should be by Reese Wabara, at Reese Wabara, R-E-E-C-E-W-A-B-A-R-A. -E 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 and the tweet reads, days are turbulent, years unpredictable, decades reveal who was really working. And then there's a cute graphic at the bottom. The days look like a sort of mountain, the years an upward slope, but the decades is a nice sort of um, smooth curve. Why did you pick this one? I picked this one, Paul, because it's a fantastic illustration uh, of the power of consistency. You know, one of the statements that I share in, in, in the book Energize is that consistency always beats intensity. And what happens is that we have this uh, we have this sort of habit of looking at the short term. Things aren't going well. Uh, you know, I'm not, not making the progress that I want to. But if we get so caught up in the outcome and forget the process, then we forget the fact that everything compounds over time. So if you consistently build your knowledge, if you consistently work on your relationships, if you consistently uh, apply positive daily habits, 
those things you don't always see uh, in months or years, but over decades, you will notice them. It's like, you know, when you begin a New Year's resolution and many of us say, we want to get fitter, we want to get healthier. And so we sign up to the gym, but after three months, we look in the mirror and we say, we have no six pack. And I get demotivated. I don't go to the gym anymore. Well, you're not going to get a six pack and look like a cover of a men's health magazine in three months. These things take time. And you notice that these changes are very subtle. That is only when maybe three, four, five years down the line, a friend comes up to you who hasn't seen you for a number of years and says, hey, you're looking in fantastic shape. You don't look like your age at all. But you haven't noticed because those changes have been so subtle. So as that tweet said, you know, decades reveal who was really working because all of these things compound and consistency pull ultimately beats intensity. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also just quickly sneak in this one by Naval. So it's at Naval, N-A-V-A-L. And it's um, how to get rich without getting lucky. And it seems to be a thread on everything. Why, why did you pick this one? For me, it, you know, I love these uh, kind of thread tweets. Uh, you, you know, it's almost like you've got a Same. bit of an education uh, rather than just like everything cram into just these, these short number of characters. So for me, it's absolute gold. You know, I, I've seen tweets by this from, from at Naval and also James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. And when they do these threads, it, it's almost like I've got a crash course uh, in a topic that is, is really useful for, for applying in my daily life. And so for, as I went through each of those uh, parts of the threads, uh, Paul, it, it was like, yes, I was just going, yes, 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 in my head, uh, because these things not only made sense, but I think if we applied them, and it goes back to this idea that knowledge may be power, but the real magic lies in the application, then we would see the results of what Naval was trying to tell us. Yeah, I must admit, I'm the same with threads. There are some very good people who do them, and then there are people who do them badly, but also it's quite entertaining <laughs> at the same time. But hey, all good. Um, okay, that is a wrap on episode five of season four. My thanks to Simon Alexander Ong for getting us energized and thinking different about ourselves and our futures. Um, you can pre-order the book now and get more information on Simon if you head over to simonalexanderong.com. Um, but also uh, check more out about the book if you go to getenergizedbook.com and energizes with a Z for the UK people listening. Um, any final words of advice for listeners, Simon? The only words of advice I would say is uh, remember you have already won the greatest lottery ticket there is going. The question is, what are you going to do with that winning ticket? That winning ticket that has given you this gift of life. Ooh, I like that. Deep to leave us on. I like that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Up next on Mouthwash is Rory Sutherland, behavioral psychologist and uh, Ogilvy chairman. We're going to be talking people, change, and a lot more besides. I urge you to tune in. Rory is always a riot. Um, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute of any of the Mouthwash episodes. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the big team at, and the big team at Big Tent Media. As always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow.com. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I'm Paul Armstrong, this is Mouthwash, listen again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash, please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta, the easy to use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.